16 or 16, 15 through verse 21. So if you didn't hear that, if you weren't here Sunday, you could pick up the tape or a CD on that. And we'll begin in verse 22 here. What's happening, really? You know, in the beginning, Jesus came and presented himself as the Messiah and offered the kingdom to the people. But more and more, we see that he's being rejected. In this chapter, he's finally, ultimately rejected by the religious authorities. And, and then we'll see later on, after chapter 13, where even the people in his own you know, household, the people from, from Nazareth, reject him as well. But here he's still offering, still making the offer of the kingdom to those who will listen and, and still showing through some miracles that he is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. And so in verse 22, it says, then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So they saw this miracle. And who could argue when someone's casting a demon out of someone who can't see and can't speak? And yet they, and notice, never once did anyone say that Jesus wasn't really healing people. Never once did they suggest, no, he, they're not healed. It was obvious the way he was healing people. They knew that he was doing this. Now they begin to question how he was doing it and said, oh, he's casting out demons by Satan himself. Jesus read their minds, knew their thoughts, and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself won't stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges." So he's saying that if it's, if it's Satan casting out Satan, first of all, that's so illogical. What possible motive could Satan have to cast demons out of people? He sent them there. A house divided can't stand. You can't say that someone's of Satan who's actually working against Satan. And then he mentioned that, you know, there are some of the people that you know, some of the Jewish people who had on occasion been able to help people be delivered from demons. And how are they doing it? Is it Satan working in them as well? And so then he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So Jesus says, not only would it be illogical for me to do this by Satan, but here's the deal. He said, if I'm doing it by the Spirit of God, if that's what's happening, what if? What if it's really of God? And he says, if I have that kind of power, who does it make me? If I'm coming in and I'm plundering the strong man's house, if I'm coming in and I am defeating Satan, if you're suggesting that I'm with Satan, that doesn't make sense. But if I'm not, then 
who does it make me but exactly who I said I was because I have the power over Satan. Who else has the power over Satan? And so he lays that out and then basically draws a line in the sand and says, you're either on my side or you're against me and you're gonna find out which side wins. And so he makes this statement to back them off the plate, to confront them with their phony allegations against him. And then comes this passage on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that's been really confusing to a lot of people, the unpardonable sin. What sin is it? Can you commit a sin that is unforgivable? And he says, therefore, I say to you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. I'm glad that he said that. I'm glad that he said every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men because We've worked up some doozies in our lives, many of us. And he already says, no, all of them, they're forgiven. But he qualifies it and says, however, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. A lot of people look at this and think that Oh no, there's a sin that we can do that God can't forgive. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. Whatever he is saying here, he's clearly not saying that there is a certain sin that you can commit with your mouth or with an action that all of a sudden God says, whoops, now it's not going to work. Now I can't forgive you. That wouldn't make sense. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And let's face it, if you take this to say, you can't say anything against the Holy Spirit, and if you say the wrong thing, boom, you're, you're damned. Well, how does that even make sense? Why would he say, you can speak against me, but you can't speak of the Holy Spirit? He later teaches that the Holy Spirit only testifies of him. And really, how could it be that saying something against the Holy Spirit just in that word, just in that speech, how could that be worse than being a mass murderer or a serial killer? How could that be worse than so many of the other things that people do that he readily says, hey, I'll forgive you. Come to me and I'll forgive you. It clearly doesn't mean that what uh, it might look like on the surface, and that is don't say anything against the Holy Spirit. See, we have to understand, put it into its historical context, Jesus is offering himself as the Messiah. And here, the religious leaders of the day are questioning him as to, is he really of Satan or not? But notice, he doesn't say, you guys just blew it. You just committed the unpardonable sin. In fact, what he's doing is warning them. He's telling them, you are treading on thin ice. This becomes, over in Mark chapter 3, the same story happens, and it's a little clearer even there, that because of what they were saying, Jesus was warning them and saying, be careful, guys. Now, what's he saying? If he's not saying, don't say anything against the Holy Spirit, what's the job of the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit's role? To testify of Jesus, to convict the world of sin and righteousness, you know, and then to be the comforter for those who are the believers. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is very simply to, re to reject and to resist that work of God that he's trying to do within our lives. And if we do that, if we get to the point where we just have completely resisted all that the Spirit wants to do in our lives, well, what happens? 
There's nothing else. There's no other way to be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And he wasn't telling these guys that, that this is what you, you know, this is what you've done. You're guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and now you're toast. He was warning them and saying, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit in a way that could be to your own peril. If you continue to resist in this way, if you continue to blame everything that God's doing on Satan, you're putting yourself in trouble. Ultimately, what I believe the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, what I believe the unpardonable sin is, is to reject Jesus Christ for life. And there may be people who decide so firmly that they're going to reject that work of the Spirit, that even while they're alive, they're without hope. Could be. I don't know who they are. I've seen some people who are so hard against the Lord that I thought there's no way they would ever get saved. And then I've seen them get saved. So it's not for me to judge if anyone has stepped over the line that much. But let's face it, Pharisees who were in Jesus's face, they were the religious leaders and they were saying, you're of the devil. They hadn't committed it yet. It wasn't too late for them yet, or he certainly would have said that. But there comes a time, and for most of us, it's going to be when we die. If we haven't chosen to yield to the Holy Spirit, if we haven't chosen to accept Jesus Christ, then there's no hope, and that's why he says, either in this age or in the age to come. There's not going to be anything down the road that's going to give you another chance. You either accept him now or you will be rejecting him for eternity. And so I, there are a couple of other ideas that some people have on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The, it, one thing that no one believes is that somehow you can say the wrong thing and it's all over for you. There are some theologians who believe that it's a sin that only could have been committed right then while Jesus was alive, and it would involve crediting Satan for what Jesus personally did. Most people understand this, though, to be that, hey, if you continue to resist the Holy Spirit, you'll get yourself to a point where there's no turning back. You, if you reject him, if you reject what he's doing in your life and you harden yourself to him sufficiently that you die rejecting Jesus Christ, that can't be forgiven. Every sin that a man commits, everything that he ever says, every blasphemy that can come out of his mouth, it'll be forgiven. It can be. To say otherwise is to play down the value of the cross of Jesus Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The only sin, and, and in fact, you know, there are people who would say, boy, people who do that, they're going to go to hell for it. You may have done some horrible things in your life. There may be some things in your past of which you're desperately ashamed of. Understand this. If you go to hell, it's not going to be because of those sins. It's not going to be because of what you've done. All of your sins, all of my sins, were placed on Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that clearly. He died for your sins. There's only one question left. There's only one sin left that matters. And if anyone goes to hell, they have to step over the body of Jesus Christ to do it. And if they go to hell, they're not going to hell because they're a thief or a liar or a blasphemer. They're not going to hell because they're a homosexual or a, you know, a crook. People who go to hell go to hell for one reason, and that is they've rejected Jesus Christ. Everything else, it can be forgiven, and that's what he says. All, anything you do, Jesus will look at you, and he'll forgive you. He wants to. But there's one sin that he can't forgive, one sin that he can't pardon, and that is if you reject him. The other stuff, it's, 
It's paid for. It's taken care of. But that one sin, that's the one that he won't do anything about. He can't do anything about it because we have to decide. We have to make up our own minds. Are we going to walk with him? Are we going to accept him? And, and that's what this is all about. Now, all the time, I always have people coming to me and saying, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. I think I've lost my salvation. I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they think it's because of some sin they did. But often the devil lies to people and makes them trip out on some thought that they had. Or, and especially this happens with people who are maybe emotionally disturbed or really stressed and going through a hard time. And they're so depressed that maybe at one point they just think, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit right now. Or they'll say a cuss word against the Holy Spirit. Or they will say, uh, you know, I know that, you know, what it is. It has something to do with saying that the devil is making Jesus do what he's doing. And they'll think that in their head. And then they'll go, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. No. If you're still alive, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you're still alive, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. And what I always say to them is, do you feel bad about it? Well, Yeah. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want salvation? Well, yeah, of course, but I've lost it. No, the only way you can want salvation is if God draws you to himself, if his Holy Spirit is inside you. And whatever it is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, whatever it is that the unpardonable sin is, if you commit it, you won't care. If you care about it, it proves that he is working within your life. Satan would love, he, he can't take our salvation away from us, but he would love to make us think that we lost it somehow. To think that we're, you know, to begin to doubt whether or not God is really going to forgive. Whether or not he can really deal with us. And it's something that many people get harassed with. Because Satan, the great liar, he's able to con us, play tricks on us, and make us feel like, oh, I'm not really saved. I, what I learned, and I can't remember, I think I heard it from J. Vernon McGee one time, but I practiced this when I was a young Christian. There are times when I'd be you know, confronted with my own sin or my own failure, and, and I'd just hear that thing, you're not really a Christian. Here's the surefire way to deal with that if you ever start feeling that way. And I did this, and it healed it within a couple of weeks. When, when Satan came to me and said, Dave, you're not really a Christian, I, go, I said, okay, yeah, you're probably right then I'm going to accept the Lord right now. I just prayed the sinner's prayer right then. Lord, please come into my heart. Forgive me there. You know, a week later, you didn't really mean it. That was really phony. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm going to do it again. And, you know, that might sound kind of silly to you, but for me anyway, after three or four times, the devil never again caused me to doubt my salvation. I haven't doubted my salvation in 25, 30 years. And if I did today, if tonight all of a sudden I went through something and, and I was doubting it, I'd just accept the Lord now. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me when I was saved. I just want to know I am. So if you ever have those kind of doubts, just accept him again. It won't hurt. It's not going to do any damage. The only one that will hurt is the devil who's been trying to lie to you and rip you off. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. He's telling these Pharisees, he said, you know, look at your fruit, look at my fruit. Who's got the right tree? Who is the one who's actually producing something? You're trying to bust me for healing people. I'm healing people. You're arguing against it. Look at your fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So he's telling them, look at your fruit. That's what's going to be the indicator of where you stand, of who you are, of what you're made of. And so he said, you toss out things like this, and maybe it's an idle word. Maybe you don't really believe that I'm casting demons out by Satan, by his power. But when you say things like this, someday you're going to have to explain what you meant. Someday when you face me and I judge you, he's saying, you're going to answer for yourself. And if this kind of garbage is coming out of your mouth, it's a good indication that you have a problem in your heart. And it's true for all of us. Our mouth is a great little indicator of where our heart is. But let's not be all, you know, depressed about it and let's not get down on ourselves. Let's say, God, please work in my heart. I don't like what's coming out of my mouth. He says, if, if there's a problem with a tree, it's shown forth in the fruit. And so as I look at my fruit, as I see what comes out of my mouth, it may not just be cuss words or something like that. It could be something as simple as gossip. And when I do that, it's showing me that there's something that's wrong within my heart. And God doesn't say that to just make me feel bad. He says that so that I can go to him for a new heart. And for them, he was trying to point out to them, look what's coming out of you. Where is that garbage coming from? And he wasn't saying it to convict them, really. He was saying it with hopes that they could see the point. He spent a lot of time with the Pharisees trying to explain to them who he was. And unfortunately, for many of them, they didn't get it. Some of them did, Nicodemus among them. So then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Come on, he had just cast demons out of a guy who can't see and can't speak. And now they're going, well, you got anything else? He had just been healing everyone who came to him just before that, and they're asking for more. They're wanting to see another trick. Kind of like Gideon when he put his fleece out and said, make the ground wet and the fleece dry, and God did it. And then he said, how about the ground dry and the fleece wet? It's, it's this notion that, come on, God, do a trick. I was talking to someone this week up at camp, and she was talking about how she was really seeking the Lord on something, and, and she said, she prayed, you know, that, that God would, if God was telling her a particular thing, that she would have all green lights for the next few minutes. And she said there were like five green lights. Then the next day she prayed that there would be all red lights and they were red. And I said, well, you know, that's interesting. But I said, what time was it when you got all the green lights? She said, oh, it was like late at night, like 11 o'clock. I said, and you're on a busy street, 11 o'clock, you're going to get green lights. If you really want to see a miracle, ask for all red lights when there are no cars around. I said, how about when they were all red lights? Well, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, God doesn't want or need us to have him jump through hoops in order for him to speak to us. He's perfectly capable of, capable of speaking to us from his word and within our hearts. And so... But here they're saying, do a sign. And he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is saying, you guys want another trick. You want to see more magic. That's what you're looking for. He said, you guys have seen so much already. Don't you get it? He said, in Nineveh, when Jonah went and preached that God was going to destroy Nineveh, they repented. And some of those people who got saved at those times, they will be there when you're sitting there defending yourself and saying, we didn't see enough magic tricks. And, and the people from Nineveh are going to be there and going, hey, look, all we heard was a word and we repented. What's your problem? And the queen of Sheba will be there and say, when I heard about the wisdom of Solomon, I traveled all the way there in order to, to come and to hear that wisdom. And Jesus is much greater than Solomon. And so he's saying there are witnesses all around, but basically, if you want a miracle, I'll give you a miracle. I'm going to die. After three days, I'm going to rise again. If you don't get it from that, you won't get it from anything else. And I'd say the same thing to you and to me today. Do you need another sign? Do you need another miracle? Is it, well, God, you need to really show me this. Come on. He rose from the dead. We know that. It's been proven. It's an established fact. It's ridiculous for us to ask him to jump through other hoops. I might have told you before, but there was one time when I was up in the mountains speaking at a retreat, and I was going through a real tough time in my life, and so I went out to spend some time with the Lord, and I, and I, and I was talking to him, and I said, God, if you really love me, right there in the sky, right in that place, could you just make a shooting star go by so I know you love me? And I felt the Lord ministering to me and just saying, I sent my son to die for you. Isn't that enough? I need to make a star go in order for you to, and I just, oh God, I'm so sorry. I know you love me. And I just repented to him and, and just felt such a peace. And I was still looking at that part of the sky and a shooting star went by right then. And I thought, isn't that funny? I just started to laugh. And I thought, given the distance and everything, when did God have to make that you know, shooting star go in order for me to see it right at that point. And he didn't do it to show me that he loved me. He did it just to make me laugh. See, but he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to do tricks for us. He doesn't, we don't, we shouldn't need signs and wonders. We've seen the ultimate sign and wonder. Jesus Christ died for our sins, loved us so much, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, speaks to us still today. And so uh, basically he knew these guys didn't need a sign, but no one does. He said, you'll see the ultimate sign. And then he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Kind of a weird passage of scripture, really. But what he appears to be teaching here is that if someone is delivered of demons, if, if demons come out of a person, and yet their life is not filled with the presence of God, with the Holy Spirit, but really what you do is just clean up your act and it's all nice and clean, that 
If it's not full, if it's left empty, maybe the demons have the opportunity and the ability to enter back into a person and bring a bunch of their friends and make it worse than ever. Now, I don't want to make too much of this passage of Scripture, and there are people who build entire doctrines around it and everything, but that seems to be what he's saying, and have no reason to believe that's not true. The principle is definitely true, that when people try to clean up their own act, when people try to, on their own effort, just take care of themselves, self-help, invariably, without allowing God to fill you, without being filled with his spirit, without allowing him to take complete control, those efforts will be short-lived. And in the context of demon possession, in which they had just been dealing with that and they had been making those accusations, I think Jesus states a, a good principle that goes much beyond that, and that is you can't take care of yourself. What you need is for the ultimate strong man, God himself, to come into your house, to dwell there, and then believe me, no demons are going to be moving in, no problems are going to be moving in. It's the difference between someone who is delivered from a drug habit because they were well-intended, because they felt like, boy, I need to clean up my act. The difference between a person like that and a person who's delivered from a drug habit because God's working in their life and he begins to fill their life with so many other things that there aren't room for drugs anymore. Being delivered from drugs in your own strength, it works. And it's great. I'm not complaining against it. I, people who just go to AA and get free of drugs, great. The problem is if something isn't put there to fill that space, the likelihood of falling back into those old habits is very real. We've all seen it happen. Sadly, I've seen it happen to Christians who won't allow the Holy Spirit to fill them. They just want him to live in a part of their life. And what happens is those problems creep back in, begin to become at home again in their lives. And so it's allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly within us that assures that those things that we're delivered from don't come crawling back, and, and this time they're worse. I've seen it happen too many times. It's sad, and it's not necessary. But we need to realize the one who delivers us is the one who wants to fill us. Then uh, it says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And somebody said to him, hey, your mom and your brothers are standing outside, and they want to talk to you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Seems kind of disrespectful, especially to Mother Mary, but even to the family. I mean, how, how would you feel if, if you went to one of your relatives' houses and, and you said, hey, tell him that you know, his mom's out here, and word came back, who's my mom? Who's my mom? All the people in here, they're my family. But I mean, it's important enough that it was repeated in the other gospels. We don't know exactly why Mary and the boys had come to, to talk to him, but we see over in the Gospel of John chapter 7 that his brothers came, and they were specifically, it says that his brothers at that point didn't believe in him. And they seemed to be trying to protect him 
by telling them, shut up with all the controversial stuff and just kind of mellow out. Don't You're getting kind of weird. People are starting to say weird things about you, Jesus. And, you know, we're, hey, we're your family. Come on, take it easy. And it could be that he knew at this point that that's exactly what they were doing. The crowds were coming in. The pressure was on. The Pharisees were trying to destroy him. And like any good family member who isn't hearing from God, you want to step in and fix it. You don't want to see someone that you care about endangering themselves. And so perhaps that's why they were coming there. But Jesus makes a a point that is puzzling to me, but it's great too, because he says, basically, people who listen to my word, people who are here sitting at my feet, they're my family. They're my mother, my brother, my sisters. The reason I like that so much is that I'm not a blood relative of his, but I do sit at his feet. And you who are here on a Wednesday night, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, desiring to learn from him, he looks at you and he says, you guys are my family. You guys are my family more than those to whom I'm related blood-wise. You're my mother, my brother, my sisters, the ones who are following me. They're not. They're coming from the outside. That's not family to me. To me, family. And many of you have experienced this sometimes. And it's, you know, I want to be careful not to go too far. But, you know, there are times when those, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, become much more precious to you, much more intimate with you than people who are your blood relatives who don't know the Lord. And we need to love all of our relatives, those who know the Lord and those who don't. But at the same time, you know it. We don't like to talk about it, but it's just true. There, if you're spending much time in fellowship, you're going to find that the people who are here, your family spiritually, are much closer to you than your real relatives who don't get it, who don't understand it. And if there is going to be a division, and Jesus said, I came and when I present my message, it'll divide families. And some of us have experienced that to different degrees. Isn't it great that when he does that, when that happens naturally, and it's not us rejecting our families, it's our families being drawn away in a different direction from us. It's so cool that he gives us a family, that he prepares a family for us, that we can be close with, that we can be intimate with. And so Jesus says that. It's also on a side note important to mention that the Catholic Church's doctrine concerning Mary being a perpetual virgin, that is, she hadn't had sex before she had Jesus, and she never did afterwards either. There are a lot of scriptures that would contradict that, but this is one when it refers to his brothers, and and uh, you know, and, and later you'll see talking about his sisters and things like that in Mark. Uh, it's and it names some of his brothers. It's pretty obvious that the perpetual virginity of Mary is not is not true, was not a biblical concept. Now, there are there is a way around it if you want to remain, you know, hard and fast on the Catholic doctrine of that. What they say, just to be fair, um, because I don't want to misrepresent their position at all, they suggest that these were Jesus's half-brothers in the sense that they were Joseph's kids. And they're saying, and there's some church tradition that says that Joseph had some kids, maybe his wife died and he married Mary, so he had kids already, and so these were Jesus' stepbrothers in a way. Well, they were his half-brothers because Mary was most likely their mother and, and his mother, and yet their father was Joseph and his father was God. It seems pretty clear. If, if Joseph had had kids before this, seems like it would have said something about it, but that's just 
trying to create a doctrine that makes you comfortable still believing what you want to believe. And, you know, if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. I'm not going to quarrel with you on it, but scripture would seem to quarrel with you on it. Now, chapter 13. One of the critical chapters in the New Testament, uh, some people have suggested that chapter 13 is, is one of the top three or four chapters in importance in the whole Bible. The reason why they believe that way, and I'm not necessarily sharing that perspective, but it is a critical chapter because the Gospel of Matthew is arguably the most or one of the most important books in the New Testament because it creates that bridge between the Old Testament and the New. It so clearly establishes Jesus as the one who fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And that's why in the early church, that's why they put it first in the New Testament. It's that important. Here in chapter 13, the pivotal chapter perhaps of the book of Matthew, because Jesus has been offering the kingdom to the Jews. They're rejecting him. He is moving on to where his offer is going to be to others. And we'll see in all of these parables in chapter 13, it seems that they are descriptive of the age that we're in presently, the church age. It's mysterious because the church is a mystery. The Old Testament didn't reveal this interval from which History would culminate in the coming of the Messiah, and then he'd be rejected, and there would be this long period of time, at least a couple thousand years, before he would come again and restore things as he intended to. So we are in this time gap now, and, and chapter 13 seems to be addressing that issue and this period of time. And so as a result, there are people who regard it as being extremely important. At the same time, some of these parables are difficult to comprehend or understand. Parables, by definition, and Jesus is going to describe it in here, they're designed to be stories that teach a truth but that also conceal a truth. And we'll see as we get into this chapter, the disciples going, what is with this parable stuff? A parable is a story that makes one point, basically. You aren't to interpret parables by trying to create huge doctrinal systems out of a parable. But it's a story that he, tell, he told, a graphic portrayal of something that teaches a single significant truth. And when you understand that, it makes it a little easier to understand it. Now, it, it's great when he interprets the parable, like the parable of the sower here, he ends up explaining it. And of the eight or so parables that he tells in this chapter, he explains only two of them. The others we can sort of understand because of some of his explanations in the other parables. But these are called the kingdom parables. There are three big addresses in Matthew that everyone looks at in this regard. This is one of them. The first one, though, is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus establishes the standards of the kingdom. Then, in this case, in Matthew chapter 13, the parabolic teachings of Jesus, the, the stories that illustrate the kingdom, it addresses today. It addresses our situation that we are in as the kingdom of God is here, and yet the king hasn't returned yet. And then the last one would be Matthew 24 when he deals with the future, the Olivet Discourse. And so that's kind of the other end of the spectrum as, again, the Jews become prominent in the story as he comes back to establish his kingdom. So let's dive into this. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. 
That's kind of an interesting thing to throw out there, and there may be more to this statement than meets the eye. For him, for it to emphasize that he went out of the house, Israel is seen as a house, and so he went out of the house and sat by the sea. The sea biblically often refers to, symbolizes the Gentiles, and so in a sense, that may be what's indicated here, maybe not. It's the type of thing that theologians love to jump on, and I, I think it's at least interesting. But great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. That's not someone who sows with a sewing machine or a needle. It's someone who plants. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside on the side of the road, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? I think that's kind of cute. The disciples are going, Jesus, I don't think these people understand what you're talking about. Why are you talking to them this way? They didn't want to admit themselves that it meant no sense to them either. But he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, or the truths that haven't been seen before, that haven't been revealed. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. So what Jesus is saying is the reason I'm telling parables is that there are mysteries attached to them. And there are people who don't get it, who won't listen, who won't understand. And if they don't desire to understand, then I'm not just going to give them more ammunition to shoot at us, to criticize, to question. So I'll speak in such a way that they just think I'm crazy. But those who really listen, who really pay attention then I'm going to reveal to them. And he goes on right after this to interpret this parable for them because they didn't understand it either. But what was the difference between the disciples and, and many of the people in the multitude and certainly the Pharisees and scribes? The disciples wanted to understand. They wanted to know what he was talking about. And he says, don't worry. It's going to all make sense to you. You're going to understand a mystery. But people who aren't into it anyway, I'm not going to waste the time as he had said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, casting pearls before swine. It will be, why give them, why heap upon them just more judgment? If you're going to be judged based on what you know, and the Bible teaches that clearly, to whom much has been given, much will be required, why give them more information if they're going to reject me anyway? 
If so, they're going to be more responsible. Punishment will be worse for them. So I'll say things in code in such a way that people who really want to dig in and get to it will understand. But people who just want a cursory understanding of what I'm talking about, they'll just walk away, and that's what they're going to do anyway. So I'll save them the trouble, and we'll do it now. So he says, this is all about the mysteriousness of something. And right then, he couldn't completely explain it to even his disciples to tell them that at this point that, see, the deal is I'm going to be gone for a long time. I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven and it's going to be a long time before I return. In fact, he could never really hint at that and have them continue to believe what he wants the church to believe, and that is the truth that he can come back at any time. So if he had talked about this great church age, well, for the first few hundred years, nobody would think Jesus could come back. And so as a result, it's a mystery. It's something that you don't completely understand. He, he said that nobody even knows the day and the hour when I'm going to return. But, you know, here he's saying, this is the way I'm going to choose to teach some of the truth. If you have ears, if you pay attention, if you listen, it'll start to make sense to you. And then he explains the parable of the sower and says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When somebody hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So he says, first of all, let me help clarify the picture. It's actually God's word that's the seed, the word of the kingdom, the news that I am the king, that I've come as the Messiah. And he said, there are going to be some people who hear that, but they don't get it at all. Because like seed that's sown on the side of the road, and by the way, in those days, when they would put seed out, they didn't plant it deeply in the ground. They didn't cut deep furrows with plows. It was too difficult to do that. And so it was pretty typical that a lot of seed was assumed to be wasted, that a lot of the seed, it was just thrown out there. And maybe they would scratch a little groove in the ground and hope that would work. But basically, they depended on the wind and the rain to kind of do the planting. And so if it landed on the road... You know, it just didn't last. But he says, anybody who hears it and doesn't understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Like the birds being, being uh, symbols of the enemy. And this refers to the temptation that comes straight from the devil. Where you listen, you don't get it, you don't understand. It's just like it never happened. And sad to say, there are people who sit in church sometimes for years. And every time they begin to think, they listen, they start to, huh, maybe there's something to this. And then they go, eh, but it really doesn't make sense to me, so shine it, just forget it. I'm not going to do it. That's Satan coming and taking that away before it can ever have an effect, before it can settle into the heart. He goes on to say, the one that receives the seed on stony places... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The first case on the side of the road, Satan comes and does the ripoff. In this case, the seed that's sown on stony soil where it can't take root, this refers to the flesh, where sometimes God begins to speak to us, begins to work in our lives, but temptation comes along, tribulation, it's just, oh man, it just, there's no root. We haven't dug in deeply enough. We haven't filled ourselves with the word of God enough. We haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to take control of our lives in a meaningful way. And as a result, at what one time sprang up, 
Well, temptation comes along and just blows it away. And sadly, there are a lot of people today that respond to God's word that way. Now, the thing about seed that's sown where there isn't a lot of roots, you can throw seeds on the rocks, water it a little, grow up without any soil at all. It grows really fast, in fact. And for many people, they become Christians and their life just, boom, they're on fire. They're just going like gangbusters. And it looks great because they're so flashy. They're so impressive. But the problem is if those roots don't sink down deep into the ground, temptation's going to come along. Trials are going to come. Our flesh gets in the way. And as a result, it just never never has any kind of stability. And I've seen people who, for years, I know some people who, boy, when they're on fire for the Lord, they're just doing great. Next thing you know, something happens and they fall morally or something, and then they're just a complete mess. Then they get a little fired up again, another harvest crusade or something, and they're like, woohoo, yeah. This is. And there are some people, when I see them, I don't even ask them how they're doing. Because I can tell, when they're doing really bad, I don't see them. When all of a sudden I see them, I know they're going to give me a, a big spiel about how God's speaking to them and they're doing great. And, and I, I don't want to put that down. But you get to know certain people and you find out that they don't have that stability that comes from roots sinking deeply. And, you know, I would rather any day see someone who just quietly and patiently goes about the Christian life and consistently withstands temptation consistently is growing and they're always there and you know it I'd rather see that even if they seem to be you know you wish they'd get a little excited but at the same time I'd rather see that kind of stability any day than somebody who's all on fire one week and then down in the dumps or quitting the next or you know you don't see him for six months that's not the way he wants us to be it's those roots that get sunk down deep and allowing the temptations from the flesh to rip us off from the growth that God wants us to have and he says now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We saw first temptation from the devil. Secondly, temptation from the flesh. And here, temptation from the world. And those are the three directions from which temptation comes. And here, it's those people who, because following Jesus may not pay, because it may cost them too much, they would rather go back into living for things than to be living completely for Jesus Christ, to be allowing the, the word of God to really transform them permanently. And so, you know, there may be people who, oh, Satan lies to them and they rebuke him. They learn the word and, they, and they're ready to combat him. And then temptation comes, but they go, no way, I'm not going to go back into that mire that I, that I got saved from. But then what happens eventually sometimes for them is they've conquered those two temptations, but Boy, the world, it's just too much for them. Materialism just rips them off. It's why John said, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so that temptation from the world, the desire for things, can also rip people off. And then he says, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Interestingly, that, and we don't know the amounts of the seed, but in rough terms, it looks like three-fourths of the seed doesn't end up producing fruit. We shouldn't expect that 
every person who comes to our church or every person that we lead to the Lord, every person that we witness to, that they're all going to really take. The percentages aren't that great. Jesus, with his disciples, he was perfect. He had 12 disciples. He lost one of them, Judas, that scripture would be fulfilled. Peter, who was like one of the leaders, denied him. Most of the rest of the guys shrunk off into the background for a period at a time. It's not going to, and don't be surprised when you see people who begin falling away from the Lord, who begin to, you know, they seem like they're doing good, but then after a while they aren't. And we can get frustrated. We can start to think, boy, what was wrong? Have I failed as a friend? No, not at all. It's just that the seed is put out there. And what determines the fruitfulness or the success? It's not the sower. It's not the seed itself. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the soil. It's the ground upon which it falls. And who is responsible for preparing that soil? God wants to do that for us, but ultimately it's a person's choice. You choose. Are you going to be like the side of the road? Are you going to be like the rocky soil? Is that, is that what you're going to be like? Are the birds just going to come and take it away from you, or are you going to pay attention? Or are you, is your heart going to be that good soil that he says will bear fruit? We need to till up our own soil so that when we hear the word of God, it'll actually have an effect. And every one of us, we need to realize if we read our Bibles every day, if we come to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, still... It's what our heart is that's going to determine whether or not fruitfulness comes forth from his word. There's nothing wrong with his word. There may be something wrong with the way I present it, but it's still God's word. And so for us, we're responsible to say, God, make my heart ready to receive your word and to fight against that temptation that comes from the devil, the temptation that comes from the flesh, the temptation that comes from the world. And in a nutshell, how you combat those are different. Temptation from Satan is combated with the word of God because when Satan tempts us, he causes us to question who God is. And so as Jesus, confronted by Satan and temptation, came back with God's word. And we need to know his word so that we can fight the temptations from the devil. The temptations from the flesh, a different way of dealing with those generally. The Bible says, flee fornication, flee youthful lust. We need to learn to run away from circumstances that get us into trouble in that area. And then temptation from the world, that is dealt with as we nurture our love relationship with God, as we spend time with him in our personal devotions, as we open our hearts to him and allow him to work in our lives. See, then, because the love of the world and the love of the Father are two opposite things, if we nurture our love relationship with him, then we'll stop loving the world so much. We'll turn our eyes on Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And so dealing with these temptations, we prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. And if the soil isn't right, then the word's not going to force itself on us. We need to prepare the soil. And that's the parable of the sower. The parable of the wheat and the tares, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So a guy came and and put like weed seeds in the middle of good seed. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? 
But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. With this parable, Jesus is giving them a clue as to the fact that during this time, during the church age, during the time in which we live, the kingdom of God, his, the visible church, the people who are professing Christianity, they're not all going to be right on. Everything that they have to say isn't necessarily going to be good. There is always going to be stuff that's planted with the good seed that's destructive, and it's true in the church. There are always people who come along with some false doctrine, with some bad ideas, with some sour motives, and those things become so you know, enculturated into the church that it's tough to, you know, you look and go, who's a wheat and who's a tear? What's going on here? But Jesus is saying, our job isn't to pull out the tares. That's going to be taken care of by itself. It's not our job to go around and try to root out everybody who's a phony, to, to try to expose everyone who's not real. Basically, what he's saying is, don't worry. I'll take care of that. Let it all grow because here's the danger. You start pulling out tares, you might accidentally pull out some wheat. They, looked, they look a lot alike. They're very close together. And I've seen this to be the case, I think, many of us when we're younger as Christians. Boy, we want to go around and just find everything that's wrong and right it. We look at our brothers and sisters and we see them stumbling in some area. We see them having an issue in their life in a particular area. And we can't wait to go and confront them and let them know, boy, you're really blowing it. You're really in sin. You need to repent. Every time we hear somebody say something, and if it's in any way, it sounds like it could be misunderstood or misleading, somebody ought to say something about that. We go to a prayer meeting, and someone prays something, and what they pray doesn't sound like it's quite right, and so you're just thinking, we should stop right now and confront this issue. But as you grow in the Lord, you realize, you know, God has ways of dealing with those things. And here's the deal. If I'm spending all my time going around guessing what's a tear— Guessing what's a weed and pulling those out. Another alternative would be to spend my time planting good seed and seeing it grow, seeing it overtake the tares. And if we spend our lives looking for negative things, not only will we not be able to do those positive things that God wants us to do, but the other thing is there are going to be some injuries that we inflict on real wheat. We're going to hurt someone's feelings. We're going to offend someone. We're going to drive them away. When really, maybe they were a little confused. Maybe they did have something a little wrong. But Jesus would say, let it all grow. Let me sort it out. When the judgment comes, it's not for you to judge. I'll take care of that, he's saying. Understand this. It's going to be mixed. Don't expect that everyone who says they're a Christian is going to be. Don't expect that everyone in your church is going to be absolutely pure, is going to be right on everything. Don't expect that every church out there and every preacher out there is never going to say anything stupid. They all will. But don't spend your time sorting all that out because God already says he will. And if you try sorting it out, you're probably going to do more damage than you will be a force for healing. And so good lesson for us, something that we need to be reminded of often. 
the parable of the mustard seed, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I've seen entire books that are written on this parable. It's, it's a difficult one. Jesus doesn't really explain what it means. We know there are a whole lot of interpretations of it that we know are wrong because there are a lot of people who take the position that this is referring to everyone being able to come and partake in the gospel. All the birds, everyone from the world will be there in this beautiful tree. But that probably is not the case because in the same address in the same passage, the birds are said to be Satan. So these birds in the tree can't be a good thing. The whole significance of the mustard seed, Jesus uses it before. There are critics who would say, oh, the Bible's wrong here because there actually are some seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. Well, that's not what he was trying to say. The mustard seed may have been the strongest, the smallest seed in those days, or it may have been the smallest one they knew about. To, to see that is to miss the point. But, but mustard it's something that, you know, it doesn't really hurt anything, but it doesn't have a great usefulness either. It, I mean, it's good for hamburgers and hot dogs, but it's not like the salt and the light that we're supposed to be. Maybe that has some significance here, but his kingdom, there are going to be, the, the major point of this parable is that that which grows up, for whatever reason and wherever, and you can, you know, be left to yourself to figure that out. But the point is, there are going to be evil ones that are in the tree, that are in the group. And you need to understand it, being wise as serpents, innocent as doves, recognizing that that's just a part of the deal. There are people who are evil who are drawn to the church. There are people who are evil who are drawn to that which God is doing, and it's a case, and you, we read about it all the time. We see it happen all the time. People who take advantage of, of the church in order to use people, or in order to hurt people, in order to sin, and, and that's Jesus is, I think, making the point that you're not going to see the church, God's program, be pure right now, so expect it, be armed for it, be aware of it. Another parable he spoke to them and said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. Parable of the leaven, the same thing. Leaven biblically refers to sin. Remember when they left Israel, when they left Egypt, children of Israel took unleavened bread. For the feast of unleavened bread, they were always to do it. The leaven speaks of sin. If you take a little bit of leaven and you sneak it into unleavened bread, it's going to be leavened bread. It's going to rise. It's going to grow. And so the idea here is that there will be those who creep in. There will, because it's tied in so much with the mustard uh, seed tree, also with the birds, the idea is that creeping in will be things that will expand and grow. It reminds us of how devastating sin can be in our lives, that we can't tolerate it in ourselves, that we, that we need to speak up for that which is true, that we, in our own hearts, as God convicts us, we need to repent. We need to, to maintain a purity that he wants to help us to have because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take much. Or as Michael Jackson said, one bad apple will spoil the whole bunch or something. Or did it say doesn't spoil the whole bunch? But it really does if you let it go long enough. But that's why Jesus is better at parables than Michael Jackson anyway. 
All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he didn't speak to them. At that point, he was speaking to the large crowds, and he was just telling stories. And they were going, oh, that's a neat story. Wow. Mustard seed, birds. Oh, cool. And it was like they were watching TV. They were just being entertained by it. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundations of the world. What was secret up until this point from the foundations of the world? Not that the Messiah would come. That was something that was revealed ever since Genesis 3. But the thing that was a secret was us. The mystery was the church, as Paul says. Because who could have expected Number one, the rejection of the Messiah. Number two, that God would come up with a, another brilliant plan to reach the world. He always wanted to reach the world, but he intended to do it through the seed of Abraham. Through you will all the nations of the world be blessed. But it was through their rejection of Jesus Christ that we got blessed in order that they could see what God is doing in us and would be provoked to jealousy, that they would then return to their Messiah. And so... That's what was prophesied, the foundation of the world. It was a secret, but now Jesus was starting to reveal it. The parable of the tares, now Jesus explains it. They said, what was that tear thing? And he said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." Again, explaining the parable and saying, the day is going to come when it's all going to be sorted out. That day isn't now. That job isn't your job. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and tells all that he, what he, he sells all that he has and buys that field. He's saying if a guy sees a treasure in a field, he gets all excited and he goes and buys the whole field so he can have that which is buried on the field. And see, that's what Jesus would do as he comes and takes upon himself the sins of the world. Was it because he thought they would all be saved? No, he knew. They're going to be birds in the tree. They're going to be tares within the wheat. It's not going to happen. There's going to be bad soil more than good soil. But the point is Jesus loved us so much that he bought the whole field just so that he could have the treasure that you are to him, the treasure that I am to him. And so he's saying, that's the deal. Don't assume that everything that he's setting out to do, that he's a failure if he doesn't do it. He paid for much more than what he got. He, there are those who would say that Jesus only died for the sins of the Christians. But the Bible teaches very clearly, no, he died for the sins of the world, and he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. That was his offer, and that's what he did. He bought the field. But the fact that most of the people are going to reject him doesn't take away from the fact that he feels like, even though he died for billions, and maybe he only saves millions, he thinks it's a good deal because that's what you're worth, and and that's what he's saying here. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
The Jews didn't value pearls at all. Often pearls are used biblically to be something that's less than important. The Gentiles always valued them. And this maybe refers to the fact that, that we as pearls, valuable but Gentiles, that he sold everything. He gave everything in order to save us. Interestingly, when we get to heaven, what are the gates made out of? Everyone is going to walk through those gates that are covered with pearls. What's a pearl? It's something that came about because an oyster got a piece of dirt inside it. That irritation caused that piece of dirt to be surrounded by something that was generated by the oyster. And so the death of our Lord, the, the fact of our sin, the fact that we needed help, what does he do because of that irritation? He surrounds us. He covers us completely, clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, clothes us in, in white, clothes us in those garments that speak of his forgiveness and his purity. And that ultimately, we become rather than the piece of dirt that we were. As we are covered, surrounded by him, we become a pearl of great price. And he was willing to give everything in order to have us. He goes on here and tells the, this parable of the dragnet. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was thrown out, and they gathered it, and it was full, and they pulled it to shore, and they kept the good things, and they threw the bad away, and they said, it's going to be that way at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, cast them into the furnace of fire. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said, yeah. And he said, therefore... Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. He said, if you're kind of understanding what I'm talking about, the judgment, that that's going to happen someday and there's going to be a celebration. If you understand it, realize this. The scribe, the one who will record what I'm saying, the one who will repeat it, the person who will share this gospel of the kingdom with others, a scribe has to know what's old, and they also create what's new. And he was saying, you guys, you're a part of what's old. You're connected to what's old. You understand the Old Testament and that which it is referring to, but there's something new that I'm going to do, and you're going to be equally a part of that. And you're going to see when I put the two together, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament, then you get to participate in that. And any good scribe does that. If you don't know your past, if you don't know the history, then you can't understand and have a concept of the future. And he's saying, you get to put it all together as those who represent me. And then when Jesus had finished these parables, he left from there and came to his own country, that is Nazareth, and he taught in the synagogues as he had before. And they were astonished but their attitude was, where did this guy get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? They're all hanging around with us. Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Here he was. They saw him grow up. They should have known. But they listened to what he had to say, and they go, come on. You're a construction guy. We know your brothers. They don't even believe in you. We're marrying your sisters. Your dad's just a, you know, the implication is we remember when you were born, and it seems like your parents weren't married yet. You know, come on. 
man, where are you coming off with all of these great teachings? Where are you getting this stuff? And sadly, Jesus couldn't do a lot of miracles there. It wasn't possible because he can only work in the hearts of people who respond to him. And so he said, it's too bad, but here, you guys are my countrymen. You're my neighbors. But I, go, I have to go other places to get them to listen to me because you won't listen. And you've had this opportunity. And I came here first. But again, you see him shifting gears because after these parables, then the emphasis is more and more. He's been rejected by the leaders. Now he's being rejected by his own neighbors and family. And ultimately, again, the people of Israel will, after initially being interested in what he has to say, ultimately they'll all reject him. They'll all prefer Barabbas being freed to him being freed. Sad? Yes. But the glory is that God... He wasn't thrown off track by this. He knew it was going to happen. It's a mystery to us. It wasn't to him. And he already had a plan. And that plan was his church. That plan was you and me. And it's great to be a part of something that you know. You can look at this now and go, wow, they should have seen it. Imagine. But most of them didn't. But we do. And God is continuing his work. It's not that he's done with Israel. Please don't believe for a second that the church became Israel, took over for them. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches that he will work in us, and then when the time is right, he's still going to redeem his people. Israel will one day accept him. They will come to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for teaching us. It's easy for us to look and think, why didn't the disciples get it? Because we've seen what you've been doing for a couple thousand years, and it makes sense to us. But Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear as well, that we wouldn't be surprised when there are tares among the wheat, and that we wouldn't focus our attention on trying to remove them. That, Lord, we would understand how valuable we are to you, how much you love us, that you see us however we see ourselves, we may see ourselves as dirt, you see us as pearls. Because of your covering, because of your cleansing, your healing of us. God, thank you for using us in some way to fulfill your eternal purposes. And this thing that you call your body, the church, we're blessed to be a part of it. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us not to just think of it as just a place or just a thing to go to. But help us to know that we are organs in this living organism, your church, and that we all have a place and we all have a role. And it was mysterious to them, but it's been revealed to us, and we thank you for considering that we were worth you dying. Thanks that you didn't stay dead, but you've risen from the dead so that because you live, we can live also. We've been crucified with you, yet we don't live anymore ourselves. The life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for this new life. Help us never to drift back into the old one. Don't allow Satan, the flesh, or the world rip us off. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's all